You're listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by RICO, your local guide for all things real estate investing in Colorado. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about six ways to find capital, to find funds to go out there and invest in real estate investments. Now, as we talk about these six ways to find the capital, the money, we also need to take a quick step back and talk about what type of returns you get into real estate and how to calculate it to give you a baseline. Because one of the smart plays in the market, especially markets like Denver and Springs, where you've seen mass appreciation, is looking at the potential of tapping into your equity in your house or your primary residence. And a lot of times that is dead equity means it's not giving you money. So we got a lot of stuff to cover in today's podcast. I got my co-host, Lon Walsh today. Glad to have you back, Lon. It's great to be here. Thank you. Now, I feel like talking about maximized returns in real estate is like one of your core functions and strengths is just you are brilliant at it. And I've learned so much uh, from you on there. So before we get into six ways, I think it's really important we talk about the four ways people make money in real estate and then how that plays into calculating IRRs. So can you start off and give us an overview about the four ways to make money and run us through an IRR example? Yeah. So do you want to use maybe the example of like a long-term landlord who's got maybe a rental house? Yeah, let's do that. I think a lot of people are familiar with, hey, they go out there, buy rental property, how they make money. Great. So this is probably a really great one because probably most of our viewers can either relate to this directly because they own a rental house or else, you know, they have a friend who does or they've thought about it. So the thing that's probably most apparent to most people is, you know, I get these rents, I've got my expenses, I've got my net operating income, then I've got my mortgage payment, and then I've got some cash that's left over. So they think about their cash return based on how much cash they invested in the property. And that's just sort of like the tip of the iceberg. When you, know, when you see the iceberg, there's like this little chunk above the ocean waves. The cash on cash return is sort of like that. The other three ways you can make money is, uh, one is called you know appreciation. House goes up in value over time. Denver and the entire Colorado market have had amazing appreciation over the last decade. But actually, most of the major metrics across the U.S. are not very far behind us. So we're certainly not unique having great appreciation. When you take a look over a long time period, the vast majority of your return will actually come from appreciation, not from the the cash on cash. Um, The third way that you make money is the tenant in making your mortgage payment each month is chipping away at the principal balance of the loan. A little bit at a time at first, and then later on, as your loan gets older, more and more of that payment goes to chipping away at the the mortgage uh, balance for you. And then the fifth way is depreciation. And that's probably the least understood of all the four methods. And you can really think of depreciation as an interest-free loan from the government. Uh, your CPA will have the calculation for you, but you're allowed to write off a portion of the entire property's value every single year. And from the IRS standpoint, that's a real expense that reduces your taxable income this year. And then you pay less tax because your income is smaller. When you sell the property, you have to give that money back. It's not a one-time gift or anything like that, but you get to use that money for free during the entire lifetime that you own the asset. Um, if you do a 1031 tax-deferred exchange, then you can postpone the, re- the repayment of that depreciation benefit until you sell the next property. Um, if you own the property when you die and your kids inherit it from you, uh, let's say that you bought the, the home for 200 grand and now it's worth 500 grand at the time that you die. Um, and you have this huge amount of liability that should be due to the IRS, your kids will get a step up in basis. So they won't inherit it at 200 at the low basis. They'll inherit it at the market value on the day of your death, 500. And then they can sell it the next day for 500. And there's no tax liability. 
So uh, that's actually the greatest way to transfer wealth between generations in an extremely tax-effective way. So uh, not only are there four ways to make money with real estate, but it's also a great intergenerational wealth transfer approach as well. Yeah, I mean, you did a great job of summarizing that. And it's really important for people to understand the four ways to make money plus the stuff, the base you're talking about, because it has such a big impact on generating returns and building wealth. And we have a lot more detailed information on those four ways. We'll put a link into it. You can reach out to us as well. But to keep it simple, uh, let's talk about IRRs yes. and go through an example of the spreadsheet you built because uh, basically an IRR just figures out all the returns, sums up and tells people how much you're making every single year. You yes. get a much more technical uh, definition of it, but that's the gist. It, I'm going to try to keep it super simple. So uh, we've got a different video that we shot where we talk about um, how to analyze a rental property, like the way I like to underwrite them. So you kind of reduce the risk of ma- mistakes. And then one of the outcomes of that is it'll tell you the IRR or the internal rate of return. The simple way to think about IRR, because it is a little bit complicated, is that um, if you took a, a amount of money, a thousand bucks, and went to the bank and got a certificate of deposit for five years, and they were paying you 17% interest on that IR, on that. CD. Whoa, where do you bank at, Lon? That's uh, what I want. <laughs> in 1983, when interest rates were really high, um, you would get the exact same rate of return as you would get on a typical house that you'd buy today and turn it into a rental that has a 17 IRR. It just shows you what's your overall annual return. And that, that includes all four factors, the, the cash on cash, the paying down of the mortgage, the depreciation benefit, and then the appreciation, all the things that we talked about. So um, compounding interest, Einstein said, is the eighth wonder of the world. The man who understands it collects it. The man who doesn't understand it pays it. So let's do just a quick show of how that actually works. So you can download this uh, little Excel sheet and then you can play with it yourself. So uh, what you do is you can see on the left-hand side, I've got an IRR of 14% up through 26%. And you can adjust that to whatever is interesting to you. And then going across the other axis, I've got how many years were you invested in the investment? And you can see how much you'll be compounding over the years just by looking at the crosses on the grid. So for example, if, if you're going to earn a 17% return, which might be kind of typical in a passive investment fund or if you buy a house today, and if you do the project for five years, um, if you scroll down to where you see the green there, your $100,000 investment will generate $119,000 of profit. So when you're done with the project, you'll get your $100,000 back and you'll get $119,000 of profit on top of that. And then you can look at the sensitivity analysis. Well, what if I have a 14% profit for three years? Well, my $100,000 is going to generate a profit of 48000 And then you can look at all the different permutations. Yeah, and this is a, a great table. And I definitely recommend people just spend some time and play around with it. Like yep. it, it it can be a bit of a mind pretzel to truly understand IRRs and how interest compounds. But I love it because it's the great equalizer when it comes to comparing investing in the stock market yes. or real estate or anything else. Hey, what's my IRR? And that's taking in the time value money plus each way that respective investment gives you a return and says, hey, here's what you're making. And so with this, I mean, you know, $100,000 is a very common number we talk about when it comes to real estate investing, you know, for putting into a passive, putting into a passive fund, loaning out to someone or putting some down payment on a rental property. And now since we have this baseline, we're going to go through the six ways you can find capital and then go out there and invest it. And some of the ways you find capital do have borrowing costs associated. Yes. And that's where it gets very interesting. Hey, if I'm paying XYZ or paying 5% here, but I'm making 17% over here, does it still make sense for me to invest to 
borrow money and go invest it. Yep. So we're going to jump in into these six ways. Uh, I mean, the first one is not the most exciting, but we have to talk about it's cash sitting around. Yep. Uh, and I mean, this is just might be cash sitting in the bank account, stock market or a money market account or wherever, just cash you have. Um, so obviously that's a pretty simple thing. I mean, there's no cost to borrow against it, but I always like to keep in mind uh, two things is, hey, what's my opportunity cost with that money? Right. I can put an A, B or C. And also we are going into a recession or already are. Uh, make sure you keep some cash reserves in your account as well, because you want money in there for any day fund. You got any other tips on there for just looking at cash in a bank account and how to invest a lot? Yeah, I think if you could have uh, six months of living expenses uh, sitting really quickly available, probably in a checking or savings account at a bank making no interest, that's probably very financially prudent, particularly going into a recession. Um, if you want to be conservative, you might want to have like a year's worth of reserves. So in that case, what you can do is you can have six months at the bank making nothing. And then you know you could have something like an income fund that pays 8% and have the other six months there. So you can get that within a couple of months if you need it. Um, great. And then moving on to uh, steps two and three, I'm going to combine these since they're similar. Yep. Um, it is pulling cash out of your primary residence or a rental property. Technically, we have number two to do a cash out refinance on your house or rental. Uh, number three is do a HELOC on your house or rental. Regardless, you are pulling money out of that property. Now, there's a bunch of different nuances as to which product is the best for you. A lot of it depends on uh, your current debt on there, the property type, all sorts of stuff. So way too much to cover all the what-ifs in this podcast. But if you want a list of various lenders that Lon and I and our clients use, reach out to us, happy to share them with you. But it's all about the concept of pulling money out because you have equity in your property. It's what we call dead equity. Yes. Um, Bought the house for $200,000. Now it's worth $500,000. I probably have $350,000 in equity between appreciation and debt pay down. Yep. Great. I'm making really good cash from that property, but that equity in my property is sitting there and earning me not the highest rate of return because I have so much equity in the property. Right. Leverage is key. Um, so keep it very simple and high level. Uh, last week, as recording this podcast, I just closed on a HELOC on my primary residence. Okay. So I got a 30-year fixed loan through Joe, got a couple years ago, locked in nice and low, like 2.5%. Oh, wow. Um, but then, you know, with all the appreciation last couple of years, I wanted to tap into equity. So I got a primary, or I got a HELOC of my primary residence. It's prime plus 0.5%. Oh, pretty good. Yeah. So it's a very, very good product. And my plan is to take that and go out there and use it to invest. Right. And I've already done a bunch of analyses. It's going to be investing in real estate for obvious returns. But going back to Lon's spreadsheet here, um, he built out another part in the spreadsheet to say, what if you're borrowing at XYZ and then you go out there and invest at it? So I think right now my borrowing cost is like 5.5%. By the time this podcast goes live, it'll probably be 6% or so. Right. So we'll plug it at 6%. And assume I take $100,000 and go out there and invest into real estate. Um, and then, Lon, how do we use this section of the spreadsheet? I want to make sure we're going through it correctly. Yeah. So uh, earlier, we used that example of what if we make a 17% gross return without any borrowing costs, and we invest for five years. And what you find is that you get your $100,000 back plus one nineteen of profit. So if we have to pay 6% interest on that HELOC, we're not really making 17 anymore, we're making 11. Mm. So if we scroll down a little bit, you can see here, we're, we're gonna look at the row that says 11% for five years. Our profit now is gonna be about $68,000. And so that's after I've already 
paid back the interest and paid back to my HELOC, right? Yes. Okay. And so that's just a great way to see. So I should still make a double-digit return oh, if I can huge. hit a 70% return on my investment. I'll still make a double-digit return. So, I mean, fast forward, I am doing this because right. it makes sense. Absolutely. Because it's money that I don't have to actually take out. It's money that the market gifted me and created me. Yep. Um, now, Lon, I know you've done this on numerous properties. Your primary, you've also done a bunch of rentals as well, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So kind of moving into like rentals, can you give us a couple quick tips or things to be mindful of for pulling equity out of rental properties? Yes. Uh, what you want to do is just to be kind of financially conservative is you may like if you've got a single family house in Denver or say Dallas, where there's been a lot of appreciation as well, you may have more appreciation than you realize. And when you say, all right, I could go up to maybe 80% loan to value, I could take out this gigantic amount. So what your example was, I, I bought it for 200. It's now worth 500. If I did an 80% combined loan to value, I could have total debt of 400,000 on that property. I only have 200 of debt currently, so my, my HELOC's gonna be 200 grand. I could extract as much as 200,000 out. One quick sensitivity that you wanna do is figure out what's that combined mortgage payment gonna be for both the first mortgage that you have at two and a half percent killer rate and this new HELOC you're gonna have at about six. And just take a look at the cash flow the property generates and say, do I have enough margin? Can I, will the cash flow of the property pay those two numbers and still have some leftover for reserves for maintenance or if I have a vacancy during a recession? As long as you've got a cushion there, then it's okay to pull all the money out. Um, if you find out you're a little bit too close for comfort, then maybe don't take out the whole 200. Maybe you take out 150 or something like that. Just dial it back to be a little conservative. Yeah, great great tips there. Um, one last thing I'll say is you're always going to get more favorable financing HELOCs in your primary residence yeah. than you will a rental property. That's why myself and a bunch of people do HELOCs or cash rate refis on their primary residence. Again, we could talk for hours on different lenders and snares on here. Um, it gets very complex and it's very unique to your situation. So talk out to your lenders or reach out to me and Lon. We can help you guide through here on how to tap into your equity on your rentals or your primary residence. And it may not be known, but you can also usually get a second line of credit on a commercial property as well. So if you're in a situation that you have an office building with a ton of equity or an apartment building with a lot of equity, sometimes you can harvest that. So just call me and I'll help you guide through that process. Yeah, lots of options, especially here in Denver, most markets where we've been gifted with huge appreciation. Mm -hmm. All right, switching gears. One was cash. Two was cash at refi. Third was a HELOC. Number four and five, same bucket. Looking into using self-directed retirement accounts, a self-directed IRA or a self-directed Roth IRA. Yep. Now, Lon, what is a self-directed uh, product retirement account and what do we need to consider when using that to invest in real estate? Yeah, so a lot of you may not be aware of this. So if you worked for an employer in the past and maybe you've changed jobs, and you had a 401k at your old place, you may have decided to, uh, at, when you exit, some companies will let you keep your money at the old IRA, at the old 401k, but most will ask you to take the money out within 60 days of termination, and you'll roll, roll it over to what's called a rollover IRA. So then you can invest that at Vanguard or Fidelity or whoever you want. Um, so the default most people think of is, I'm just gonna put it in the stock and bond market. Um, most people don't know that you can do what's called a self-directed IRA and you pick a custodian, uh, there's many of them out there, New Direction, Providence, the one that I use, um, they're not any, any better or any worse than anybody else. Um, and then when the money is in a self-directed IRA, you can do anything that you want with it, really. Um, there's, it's almost unlimited. So one of the things you can invest in is real estate. 
Um, so we could talk at, at length for an hour about all the different ways to invest in real estate with your self-directed IRA. So today we're just going to talk about that you can't actually do it and kind of leave it at that. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind, um, I'm going to pull up this slide from one of your other presentations along, because this is a consideration for people to keep in mind yes. as they're investing. UBTI. What is that? And why do people need to know about it? So if you are in a self-directed IRA and you purchase something with real estate and it has any debt associated with it, you'll trigger something called UBTI's Unaffiliated Business Taxable Income. And your CPA can do all these calculations for you. So you'll, when you sell the asset, part of the gain will be taxable even though it's in an IRA account. That was new information to me. I, no one had told me that until the CPA brought it up like two years into this. Not a big deal. So what you need to do is let's pretend that you bought a property for 200 grand in your self-directed IRA or you invested in a real estate fund. Property appreciates to 300,000. So you've got this $100,000 gain. You think it's in your IRA, so I don't have to pay the gain until I retire and pull the money out. That's actually not true. Uh, a portion of the gain will be taxable upon the sale. So when you get the $300,000 back in your account, what you want to do is have your CPA do this quick calculation on what your UBTI liability is. The IRA has to pay the IRS. You can't. You're not allowed to. The, 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 the IRA has to do it. Very easy to do. The sponsor of your custodian will show you all the steps. There's nothing to it. So you won't have 300 grand to invest. You'll have like 285,000 to invest. So then you put that into your next project. You send a 15 to the IRS and you're set. Um, it's just as long as you're aware of it, be in communication with your CPA, no problem at all. And I would say, I mean, I've looked at some analyses. I mean, bottom line is even with the extra tax you're paying, it still makes sense to invest in real estate when you look at the returns. Yeah. So here's a good example for you. Um, so I, I imagine that we had $100,000 in our self-directed IRA. Um, if you take a look at the stock market of like 1950 to current, a lot of different recessions and great boom times. Um, the average return in the stock market is like 10.5%. So I put in 10% in here for your annual return. Uh, let's say we're going to place it for five years. I didn't compound it just to make the math real easy to follow. We'd have a $50,000 capital gain in the stock market in our self-directed IRA. Alternatively, we might put it into a real estate fund that turns 16% per year. So we'd make 80%, again, without the compounding. So with the stock market, there's no leverage that's involved. So there's zero UBTI tax. Uh, on the other hand, with the real estate fund, maybe it's 65% debt, 35% equity, so you're going to have about a $10,000 liability that you have to pay to the IRS. Net, you still come out $19,000 ahead with the real estate investment versus the stock portfolio. Um, just want to make sure that everyone knows about it so no one gets a, you know blindsided by the IRS. Yeah, I mean, and this is a, a powerful uh, vehicle I think investors should know. I yep. mean, because a lot of people have a huge part Nobody of their net worth this. locked up into the retirement accounts or whatever. Um when I've looked at all this over the years, what my strategy is, I use my self-direct, I have a self-directed 401k equivalent. Yep. Um, same, basically, same thing as an IRA. Um, I use that for passive investing. I have not found the returns to be as nearly interesting to use my self-directed right, to invest into directly owned real estate. Yep. The loan terms, their non-recourse loan, higher right. down payments, higher interest rates, they kind of just stink and yeah, don't make honestly. it a very good deal. Um, so that's where I think passive investing, especially for self-directed vehicles, um, to me, that's my strategy. Yeah, that's a really good point. So if, if you're the type of investor that still is doing a lot of active work, um, but you want to have some passive real estate investments and then round it out, of course, with the stock portfolio as well, I think what you said is just right. You know, to have the passive real estate funds in your self-directed IRA can be a really good match and then use a different vehicle, maybe just like cash, not in a, not in a protected account 
for your direct investments. Mm. So lots of options on here. Um, Call us if you're confused. We'll yes. walk you through all this. Everyone's situation's unique. You took the words out of my mouth, on. Sorry, man. I'm oh, good. no, you're good. Um, okay, last but not least, number six. This is something I'm fascinated by because I've learned about this recently. I know you've done it numerous times. Yep. I think it's been you know a part of one of the reasons you've posted really great returns. It's doing an equity equalization loan is a common nickname for it, but it's actually doing a 1031 but extracting cash from the 1031, which is typically something we don't see. Right. 1031, great for deferring capital gains, but you're often, you can pull no cash out because it'll also roll next property. Right. What is this? How can someone use it to extract cash? Yeah, so uh, do you want me to do just like a quick intro to the 1031 in case the viewers- Yeah, let's do that. Assume that. All right, so uh, 1031 exchange is named after the tax code. It's in section 1031. That's where it got its name. So if you sell the relinquished property, let's imagine you sell for $500,000, you've got up to 45 days to identify a replacement. And then in total, you have up to 180 days to close on that replacement property. And the new purchase property needs to be the same value as the old one or higher. So it could be 501,000 is fine. Um, and if you follow the steps, and we've got a, a, a discussion topic on that, if you need to know all the details of how the 1031 works, it's really not that bad. Uh, you can defer the capital gains payment on that initial investment until you sell the replacement investment. And that replacement one, you can do the same thing. When you sell it, you can 1031 it again into something bigger if you like. So it's a really powerful tax planning tool, legally a way to defer the payment of taxes. So a common trap that I see people fall into is that that property they bought for 200 grand, it's now at 500 grand and they've paid down the mortgage maybe to 100. So they've got $400,000 of equity on a $500,000 sale. They leave it all in there and then they go buy a property for 600,000. So 600,000, I've got 400 of equity. I can only get a $200,000 mortgage. So my rate of return increases with the more debt that I have. So if I only have 35% debt and I'm 65% equity, my returns are gonna stink. I'm gonna be lucky to make 10%. At that point, I could just well put it in the stock market, make the same returns and not have all the aggravation. Um, so what do you do about that? You can either refinance it right before you sell it. That's one way to do it. You can do what's called an equity equalization loan at the time of the closing. So what'll happen is the provider, the qualified intermediary for your 1031 exchange will put a second mortgage against your property for say $200,000. And then you'll close You'll buy the replacement, and then the qualified intermediary will give you the $200,000 back. Um, that's a tax-free event, so you can harvest equity out of the property. Uh, the third way to do it would be, and this is probably the least efficient way. And I'll make clear, they're not giving you it back. They're, they're paying off the loan that yes. you put on there, which is essentially giving you back the money, right? Yeah, sure, yeah, that's the way they do it to make it compliant with all the IRS yeah. rules. So it's completely IRS compliant, so there's no issues with any of that. Um, or the third way to do it is, is you go ahead and just put $200,000 down, on a $600,000 property, you've got all this equity in there and then you refinance it afterwards. So where that might make sense for you today is that every time there's been six recessions in the last 40 years, every single time there's been a recession, the mortgage rates have dropped by at least 1%. Usually they drop by about a point and a half. So you may buy that $600,000 property with the intention that I'm gonna refinance it in a year and a half during the recession anyway, and I'm just gonna harvest all my cash at that time. That would also be another great strategy. So um, this would be like another great example where like there isn't one size strategy that fits all. If you're contemplating any of this, call Chris or I, we'll spend five minutes on the phone with you. We'll help you craft out a strategy to maximize your wealth creation. Yeah, awesome. So went over the six ways, and I think this is very valuable stuff, Lon, so I appreciate it. Again, the six ways are using cash, is going out there and doing cash out refinance your house or rental, 
a HELOC on your rental or primary or using a self-directed IRA, Roth IRA, 401k, some type of self-directed retirement vehicle or also doing an 1031, but extracting cash. So lots of different ways. And as Lon said, this is a fun stuff. No one size fits all. It's all one big chess game. If you need help figuring out what move to make next, call us. We love to talk about this. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you. 